And so we've been going through a series called Being a Minister for Christ as we've been going through the book of 2 Timothy. And whenever we think about the concept of rescue, we tend to think of it in terms of something really dramatic. So Tom Enfield of the Spokesman Review once wrote this story of an incredible man showing some heroism. As a 20-year-old in 1945, Desmond Doss was a shy and very slim Seventh-day Adventist who became one of the most famous and unusual heroes of World War II. He was a strict believer in the Sixth Commandment, meaning thou shalt not kill. So he refused to bear arms. But he was willing to serve as a medic, one of the most dangerous jobs that the army had to offer. But one day on the Pacific island of Okinawa, Private Doss rescued almost a whole company of men who had been cut down by Japanese fire while they were trying to take an important hilltop. Crawling out among bullets and shell bursts, he dragged the wounded one by one to a sheltered spot behind a rock, tied a double bowline knot around each one of them, around their chests and their legs, and he dropped them down a 35-foot drop off a cliff to safety. And each time he did this, he would pray, Dear God, let me get just one more. You see, it took him all day, but he got the entire company. The army estimated he had saved 75 lives. And so later, he was actually awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroism. And so his story actually became so famous that it was made into a movie in 2016 called Hacksaw Ridge. And so we love stories of rescue like Desmond Doss because it touches on a part of our hearts when it comes to the idea of rescue. We know what it's like to feel hopeless in a situation or backed into a corner and we want to be rescued or pulled out of it. Or we all hope we would act like Desmond Doss in a similar circumstance and heroically save others. But I think when it comes to the idea of rescue as Christians, I think we often understand, misunderstand what it actually means. As we've been going through this series in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul has been stuck in a seemingly impossible situation at this point in his life. He's stuck in prison and he seems to know that the end of his life is near. And so for many, the rescue of Jesus is a promise to be healed of any disease or being pulled out of any difficult circumstance if we just have enough faith in Jesus. But if you've watched the world for about five seconds, you know that idea can't possibly be true. Because I'm going to bet you know somebody or you know of someone who had incredible faith to be healed or delivered from a difficult circumstance and they never were. You see, yes, Jesus did say in John 14, 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But the idea we're talking about, about just claiming that anything, if we just ask Jesus, it's going to happen because we've asked it, that this idea completely misunderstands what Jesus really meant in that passage. So what does rescue really mean? Well, as we're going to see from the Apostle Paul today, as he closes out this letter to Timothy, the rescue of Jesus is far greater than just a rescue from earthly troubles. Rather, the rescue of Jesus is to bring people to himself and to strengthen them for his mission. 
So this morning we're going to look at three ways Jesus rescues us that Paul describes in this passage today. So I invite you today to turn into a Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4 starting in verse 9. And so while you turn there, let's get a little understanding of the background of what we're talking about this morning. You see, as Paul wrote this letter, he's imprisoned in Rome for preaching Jesus as Savior and King. Paul seems to know that the end is near, and so he is pleading with Timothy to come and visit him one last time while he is in prison awaiting his sentence. See, Paul left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to pastor the church there, so Timothy's going to have a long journey to come from Asia Minor to Italy in Rome. But to Paul, it seems like this trial is going to inevitably lead to his conviction and execution. So he's making sure everything is in order for him to depart. And in many ways, Paul is passing on this mission to Timothy to continue the mission of planting churches around the world. But last week, we saw how Paul viewed the end of his life and how he felt like he had fought the good fight. He had kept the faith and that the Lord was going to give him a righteous reward for all that he had done in this life. But today, we're going to see how Paul concludes this letter, how he asks for particular things from Timothy to bring him. But Paul's heart is still focused solely on the person of Jesus and what he can do for Paul in the midst of this trial. So let's begin by looking at verse 9 and 10. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. In verse 9, it seems like Paul is trying to remove any sort of reluctance from Timothy to come. So Paul, in the Greek here, he writes in what's called the imperative mood. It's like a directive, a command that he's giving to Timothy. Whereas earlier in the letter, he wasn't actually so direct in telling Timothy to come. But it's also an urgent command because he says, come to me quickly. So then Paul then contrasts this request of Timothy by looking at how people have left him, how Paul is kind of alone. First, he goes over this man named Demas. And he left, Demas left because it says he loved this world. And so it's not exactly clear what happened to Demas. But one thing is, a conflict of values arose between Paul and Demas, so much so that Demas prioritized himself and what he wanted over the mission of God. And so Paul feels abandoned at this moment. And I think if Demas had totally abandoned the faith, I think Paul would have told us, but we still don't know the full story. Then Paul mentions two more who left him, guys by the name of Crescens and Titus. And yes, Titus is another one of the letters that Paul wrote, another guy he wrote a letter to. So this is a very important person. But these two seem to, be, seem to have been sent off by Paul to continue the mission somewhere else. And Paul's feeling of abandonment remains. Verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. So Luke, the physician, the, who is also the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, it's kind of a two-part series, is the only one who is still with Paul at this point. But then Paul mentions Mark here, which is beautiful and amazing why he does this. See, in Acts 15.38, Luke, the physician there, writes how Mark left Paul in the middle of a missionary journey, and Paul was angry about Mark abandoning him. And it's actually the way it's phrased in Acts. It's very similar to how Paul is actually describing what happened with Demas in verse 10. 
But now we see how Mark and Paul have actually reconciled. They've come back together. So I want us to understand something. This doesn't necessarily, isn't a main point of what we're talking about this morning, but I think based on our current cultural climate, it's way too important to skip over. You see, the heart of God is always that when his people are in conflict, that they reconcile. He does not want his people not to be united. And so not only have they reconciled Paul and Mark, but Paul now thinks highly of Mark and says, he is helpful to me in my ministry. And so this relationship has been completely turned around. I want us to always keep this in mind. God can turn any broken relationship around as long as both parties are willing and humble enough to admit their faults and desire that reconciliation. And so as a result of this pandemic and the political situation, I feel like a lot of Christians are at war with each other. And let me just put it real bluntly, this is not the will of God. It is so important. It's actually so important that Paul and other writers in the New Testament actually say our unity is a proof that Jesus is real. So we are really hurting it when we are not united. So we need to be as a church. But looking at verse 12, Paul had then sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Likely what he was doing is Tychicus was actually the deliverer of this letter. And he was going to relieve Timothy from leading the church in Ephesus so that Timothy could then travel over to Rome to visit Paul. But all of these things that are happening here are to show the disbanding of Paul's team around him, that he feels abandoned. But it's by various circumstances and reasons, but Paul is feeling kind of alone. Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. So Paul is asking Timothy to bring this sort of garment of his that was a heavy, circular-shaped kind of cape with a hole in the middle so you could put your head through. It was made from goat hair or other kind of coarse wool, and it was really important to have during the winter months when it was cold. And so this is why Paul is going to say later in verse 21 that he's asking Timothy to come before winter because it's going to get really cold and he wants to be warm. But the reason he left this cloak at Troas, it's not totally clear to us as to why that happened, but it's possible that he let Carpus borrow it for a time. And again, the parchments are also something that's unclear. As I was studying for this, I saw about 900 different opinions on what Paul meant by saying parchments. And it's, it really doesn't matter all that much. What's important here is it could be the scriptures, it could be other writings. The important thing is Paul is continuing here to show he is on mission. He is continuing to study to be able to be prepared to speak for the Lord. And so he's always ready for that. Verse 14. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So this warning that Paul gives to Timothy is to aid Timothy in his travels to Rome. So he warns him about this guy named Alexander he might face along the journey. Well, who is this guy? Likely this Alexander is a man that Paul had expelled from the church because he had decided to rebel against the teaching and the leadership of the church, and he was teaching something that was contrary to what Jesus taught. And so oftentimes in churches, what we do is we warn people, we give them a chance to turn it around, and what happened is this guy decided not to turn around, and so Paul said, all right, no more. You're, you're done. You can't, we can't keep this up. And so now Alexander is getting revenge at Paul, and so this is what's happened. He says that Alexander 
caused great, a great deal of harm for Paul. This is what he, what is possible, what he means by that. It also, this phrase also could mean that he brought charges against Paul. So Alexander might actually be the chief witness who is coming and bringing out these charges against Paul in his court trial. So Paul, again, is warning Timothy, watch out for this guy. You're probably going to come across him. He might try and do the same thing to you that he did to me. So stay clear of him. But check out something here that's really, really important for our discussion this morning. You see, Paul leaves the justice for this wrongdoing against him completely to God. You see, the Lord, this idea of the Lord will repay him for what he has done is a constant theme throughout the Bible. God repays people according to their deeds, matches up with their deeds, whether good or evil. And so for Christians, were it not for Christ's sacrifice, paying the price for our sin, we would be due this kind of repayment, a punishment for our sins. But instead, because of our faith in Jesus, God will now pay back to followers of him righteousness, mercy, grace, and a reward for faithfully following him. But for people like Alexander who have rebelled against God, God will do the payback and bring about a just punishment upon him. But important for our discussion, however, is that because Paul knows that the Lord will repay the wrongdoings done to him, he knows that he doesn't have to do it. He can let that go. So this is our first way that Jesus brings about his rescue, is that Jesus rescues us by justly repaying wrongdoing. You see, there's a specific genre of movies, and I love a lot of different types of movies, that I used to really enjoy, but I don't so much anymore, and I like to call it the revenge movie. So here's the basic plot about uh, basically all of them. Something horrible happens to the main character or to somebody that he loves, and he or she seeks to get revenge against those people who hurt him or somebody important to them, okay? The reason I can't personally enjoy these types of movies anymore is that it glorifies this idea of revenge. And for us as Christians, we have to remember that it is God who does this kind of work. You see, I've gone through plenty of scenarios in my life where I wanted to see justice happen to a person who had hurt me. But you see, it was usually out of my own selfish desire for revenge that I wanted to see it happen. Rather than letting Jesus do his work in that person's life. And trust me, I understand, to let Jesus take control of something like this is extremely difficult. But because he is the only perfect, holy, and sovereign being in the universe, it is best to just leave it to him. Because he will always do what is right. You see, if it were up to me to bring justice on people, I'm going to promise you this. I would cause far more harm than good if it were up to me. But what this also does is allows for us to be like Jesus to these people and to show mercy and grace to people who least deserve it, which is exactly what Jesus has done for us. So when we recognize our own sinfulness before the Lord and our own need for forgiveness and that there is a just penalty due to us for our sin, we begin to see the heart of God all the more clearly. Because Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, before we had even asked for his forgiveness. But we also see how we are not better or more righteous than the person who hurt us, but instead are equally in need of a redeeming Savior. 
So we pray for them. We ask for the Lord to soften their hearts, but to also properly and justly address the wrongdoing in that situation. So this morning, if you're angry or bitter towards someone for a wrong that they have done to you, just give it to Jesus. Ask him to help you see his heart for that person and for the heart to forgive and reconcile if it's necessary and appropriate. But also to have peace and assurance and trust in how we will address the wrongdoing in his perfect and holy justice. Don't, let me just say, don't try to be God and dole out justice. That's just way too much pressure. Instead, ask Jesus to work on your heart and on their heart and make you more like him through it. Let's continue verse 16. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. So Paul has a very specific event in mind at this moment, but it's not clear what event he is actually referring to. However, overall, it does refer to the fact of his ongoing trial of preaching the gospel and so he really did feel alone at this time and now he's saying that no one came to support him and this statement is actually really surprising given that it was actually a customary practice for friends of someone in a trial like this to come and show support for their friend at the trial but Paul shows a great character here by saying don't I don't want it I don't hold it against them I don't want to hold it against them But Paul is now also creating a contrast to point to the goodness of Jesus. Verse 17. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. So even though Paul felt like he was alone, he knew that the Lord was by his side. Paul uses here the Greek word in terms of help, the Greek word peristemi, which gives a concept of standing by for help. So it's more than just that the Lord was present with him to be near him, but the Lord was present with him to be there for Paul's help, and that he is ready and available to help Paul when he needs it. And this is absolutely amazing how Paul always acts here. He continues to show his own devotion to continue the mission even when he is facing these difficult circumstances. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we have faced times like these where we feel abandoned, we feel alone, one of the last things that we think of is sharing the gospel message with someone. But this is the call that Jesus places on our lives and that he will use the negative circumstances we go through to give us strength to proclaim the gospel to others. You see, this idea of the gospel being fully proclaimed, as Paul says here, is about the mission being performed to its full completion around the whole world. Paul desired to have the gospel preached in Rome and also to the ends of the earth. And this was something that Jesus had commanded his disciples to do. He said, make disciples of all nations. Go to the ends of the earth to share this message. And so this became Paul's desire as well. It was also his desire that all the Gentiles might hear it. Gentiles meaning anybody who is not Jewish. And so this is the heartbeat of Paul for every person around the world to hear this good news. But then at the end of verse 17, Paul uses this phrase that if you grew up in church or if you've been reading the Bible enough, you might know this story of Daniel in the lion's den where Daniel was delivered from being put into a lion's den for a punishment by God. God rescued him from it by keeping the lion's mouth shut. 
And so he's referencing this, and this is something we'll talk about in a minute when we get to verse 18, because it's really interesting. So hold that thought there for a second. But notice that this presence and strength that Paul is talking about from God is not just to benefit himself, but to benefit others. The strength of Jesus, let's keep this in mind, is not just so that you can get through a difficult season, but so that you may be able to share the good news of Jesus to others. See, the story of how God is working in your life is not merely for yourself, but so that others may come to know Jesus through your life and through your story. And so here is the second way that Jesus rescues us. Jesus rescues us with his presence to strengthen us for his mission. You see, even if you are not a believer or are completely uninterested in Jesus, you likely know what it feels like to be abandoned. The loneliness can be crippling, debilitating, and make you feel hopeless. I remember when I was diagnosed with depression about 10 years ago, and I was prescribed by my doctor at the time medication to deal with it, that when I left that doctor's office, I had never felt more alone in that moment. But one of the ways I found myself restored and healed and came out of this depression was learning about the presence of God. That God was present with me in my struggle. That he was not telling me that I was worthless. He was telling me that I was his child. He was not telling me that I needed to be perfect before I came to him. He was telling me that I could approach him just as I was and he would be the one to restore me and make me new. You see, and God has used this story in really powerful ways throughout my ministry life, in particular with youth ministry. I can't tell you how many times when I share this story at like our our summer camp or at youth group, how many times I've had kids come and talk to me and I'm able to talk to them and tell them about how good Jesus is because of my story. That wouldn't have happened if I, that I wouldn't be able to do that if those things didn't happen in my life. I want you to remember any moment of God's presence and strength in your life is not for you alone. It is for the benefit of others to fulfill God's mission of bringing his whole gospel, bringing his gospel to the whole world so that all people may see who God is and what he has done for them in Jesus. And keep in mind what Paul said. The message is shared through him, not by him. And it's God's strength that does it. And so your job as a Christian is simply to share the message through the strength that God has already given to you in your heart with his Holy Spirit when you believed in Jesus. Your job as a Christian is not to close the sale to make sure that a person receives Christ. That's God's job. So in many ways, you actually cannot fail in sharing the gospel if you simply just share it with people because it's not your job to actually have them be saved. You can only fail by not actually sharing the message with someone. So I want you to think for a minute, who in your life right now could you build a relationship with? Could you share your story with? Could you take a chance with to share the gospel with them because you have built a trusting relationship with them? So be sensitive to God's leading and pray for the opportunity and he will lead you to the people that need to hear specifically from you. I've seen that so many times in my own life. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
So now in this verse, Paul shifts here into the future tense in the Greek about something God is going to do. So I reference verse 17 where he said, I will be... I, I was delivered. So this was more of a past tense kind of thing, something that had already happened. And Paul uses the Greek word ruomai here, which means to rescue or deliver. And it can be used to refer to a rescue that happens in this life or something that is in the future coming. So we get both of those tenses right here in this passage. But for Paul, the credit always, always goes back to God. So in this instance, Paul is looking ahead to the ultimate rescue of being in eternity with Jesus. He's not using it in a way to say, I am not going to be convicted at my trial and I am going to be set free because I believe it. I know it's going to happen. That's not what he means. You see, in the past, Paul has been physically rescued from some incredible circumstances. And so for him, it foreshadows the ultimate rescue that Jesus will accomplish someday in his life. And so because Jesus lived a perfect life, that he willingly died on the cross and took on our sin to pay the penalty for our sin and then rose from the dead, our faith in him is an entrance ticket to receive the ultimate deliverance from our debt of sin to a perfect, holy God. We have been set free and delivered from the power of sin over us, and so nothing that happens in this life comes even close to comparing to that kind of rescue. But when we look at Paul's life, we see that he was constantly facing trials. He was beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, ostracized, stoned, left for dead, rejected, hated, and much, much more. And so we too, we're not guaranteed safety in easy circumstances in this life. Instead, we are promised that no matter what happens to us and how we are attacked, that we have an ultimate deliverance to God's eternal kingdom before us that no one or no thing can ever take away. But I want us to understand something that's really important about this passage. See, working in youth ministry, one of my favorite things about it is the questions that I get from students about the Bible and how they don't understand something that they read. And so one of the most frequent questions I've gotten is, what is heaven going to be like? And I used to be absolutely terrified of that idea of eternity and that it might be like boring and something where we just sit on clouds and eat Philadelphia cream cheese, you know, because that's what I I remember those commercials growing up, seeing those. I thought this is what heaven's going to be. And that looks boring and it's going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. As a 10-year-old, that cyclical thought like was obsessive sometimes. Like I was terrified of the idea. But I want us to understand something. Heaven is not merely this place we go to when we die if we are Christians. It's to live in eternity with Jesus as our king in a perfect relationship with him that we were created to have from the very beginning, completely unhindered by sin or any brokenness of this world. You see, I started to think of it like this. Going to heaven is like coming home to a place where you belong, where you are loved, where you can rest easy from a hard day's work, where you will feel satisfied, never feel an inner longing or sense the brokenness of this world. But mostly I want us to understand is to come to Jesus himself where we find everything that we will ever need. 
See, we are not saved from our sins to merely be in a better place someday, but to be with the God who created us wonderfully. He formed us intentionally, knows us intimately, and loved us sacrificially by sending his son to die for us. Only in him can we find the perfect peace and rest that we long for. God saves us to draw us to himself. Verse 19. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul concludes the letter by telling Timothy about these people who are greeting him. And I could go over every single one of these names, but we simply do not have time to do that. And so we, just so you know, all of these people, they're important to Paul and his ministry, and they're all greeting Timothy. Verse 21. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So Paul's urgency, likely with his cloak, is shown in verse 21, asking Timothy to come before winter, to come quickly. And I just want to say this really quick. It's a bit of a sidebar. But when I was in Bible college, my professor for a class I took called Bible Study Methods used this verse as a, as a tool to teach us a very valuable lesson when it comes to studying the Bible. You see, there are verses in the Bible that you simply don't try and pull a grand spiritual lesson from because sometimes it's just a guy might be cold and wants his jacket for the winter. It's something as straightforward as that. So be careful in your own Bible study not to over-spiritualize something that is kind of just a regular life thing. But Paul here lists others that are with him, and they also greet Timothy. These others are unknown in the rest of the New Testament, but a big question should arise here. If Paul really is feeling alone, why is he sending greetings from all these different people? If he's really alone, why are these people saying hi to Timothy? You see, what I think is, after a lot of studying and looking at different opinions, these people could have been very well timid about going to Paul's trial and standing there to support him, but then instead have visited him regularly in prison and learned from him. And so Timothy probably knew these people as well. So Paul's feeling of loneliness could simply be regarding his trial and, and facing that by himself. But then Paul closes out this letter by making two statements. The first is for Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. Well, what does he mean by that? You see, this is close to other endings that Paul gives. And essentially, Paul is saying, may the Lord's presence, his spirit, be with the spirit of a person or the soul of a person, which is the tool that relates to God, how we can relate to God. And then the second statement is for the church at Ephesus. Grace is God's undeserved favor of blessing and mercy upon sinful people. And, God, and Paul wants that kind of thing on all of the church at Ephesus that Timothy leads. For our, for our final point, I want us to go back to verse 18 to make sure we understand the third way that Jesus rescues us. Jesus rescues us to himself. Jesus' rescue cannot be reduced to a get-out-of-jail-free card or fire insurance. Instead, his rescue is about an invitation to have a relationship with him, to share in the greatness of who he is and, the, and his boundless love for us. 
I want to plead with you this morning that Jesus does not want you to come to him with your impressive list of religious successes or your church attendance percentage or how your good deeds outweigh your bads, your tithing records, how much theology you know. He wants you to come to him as you are right now with all of your flaws, imperfections, failures, addictions, doubts, depression, anger, sin, And to come to him so that he can give you the greatest gift known to humanity, himself. Jesus rescues us to be with him forever in his eternal kingdom. And that can start right now in this life. If you have never done so before in your life. You simply come to him and you say that you know you've sinned against him, but that you want to change and come to know him and believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died on the cross to pay the debt of your and my sin that we owed to God. And that because of his resurrection, Jesus' death was sufficient to pay that debt. And so when you put your full trust in him, when you surrender your whole life over to him, you are not only forgiven, but the spirit of God now lives in you to change you, to make you a new person, and to change you from the inside out because of his love for you. And like we talked about earlier, to strengthen you for the mission. And so this all happens because Jesus rescues us to himself Because he created us to know him, and he has made a way for that to happen through the cross. So I don't know what you've come in with this morning to this building. And for those of you at home watching online, I don't know what you're dealing with. But I'm very certain that many of you are feeling the need to be rescued from something. You might be tired of all the lockdowns, the pandemic, the mask mandates, the social distancing, not being able to see family and friends, the political conflict we keep facing in our state and country, and all the other things that we have dealt with in the last year. You might be in a difficult marriage that you see no hope of getting better. You may be watching a child or another loved one make huge mistakes or walk away from a faith in Jesus. You might be stuck in an habitual addiction that you feel like you can never beat. Or you feel like you are crippled with doubt about Jesus because you've seen so much suffering in this world. I want to close with this quote by Oswald Chambers who wrote one of the best daily devotionals that you can ever read. My utmost for his highest. He wrote, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. So this morning, I want you to remember that this God who promises rescue, even in ways we may not want or like, is a God of love who will sometimes allow for a fiery furnace type of experience that will draw us to himself so that we we may truly see the goodness of who he really is. So just because you feel stuck in a seemingly unbearable circumstance, this God of love promises his presence to strengthen you to continue pushing forward, to continue his mission, even if you don't always feel like it. But remember, the rescue of Jesus is to bring people to himself and to strengthen them for his mission. Trust in the one who died to bring you closer to himself because of his great love. You're not alone. Not just because God is with you, but because everyone in this room has experienced situations before where they needed the rescue of Jesus. Here is where you can find hope in Jesus, but also find it through his people who can tangibly show you the incredible love of Jesus and his rescue.
Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. Jesus, we're so thankful that you rescue us, maybe sometimes in ways that we don't particularly want, but God, it's always good because you are good. So Jesus, I pray that we would surrender our lives to you. We would see that you are so good. And Jesus, we, we trust you that you have rescued us for a purpose, for a reason to go and be strengthened for a mission to go and tell other people about you and disciple them into a deeper relationship with you. And so God, I pray this morning that we would be that, those kind of people. Help us to remember as well, God, you rescue us to yourself. It's not just to save us from a particular thing, God, but it's to rescue us to you. So help us to remember that, and we thank you for all that you have done for us. And we pray this all in your name.